Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This week we are in Parshat Balak. Often Balak is read with Chukat. It is a double portion. Chukat and Balak are often read together. Usually they're read together. And when we have four extra Shabbatot in a year and we need to pull the Parshiot apart, we assign one to each uh, Shabbat. Uh, so what that means is when we have a double portion, it means we often don't see a lot of the material in those portions because we only read right, a tiny bit of them. So uh, we're, we read Chukat last week, we're reading Balak this week, and we're taking Balak and cutting it into thirds because we're reading on the second uh, triennial reading of every parsha. Some parshiot, the meat of the action happens in one portion. So if you cut it in thirds, you're left with, you know, in not such a rich collection of stuff going on. Having said that, we're going to dig into a third of the story of Balak uh, and see what we can dig up. Because it's too much to read all on an annual cycle, to read the whole portion annually, it's too much. Do some people do that, though? Yes. Yes. It is an ancient practice to read on a triennial cycle. Uh, then it became normative. Like, most of our grandparents would have read on an annual cycle. They read the whole Parsha uh, each year. But that puts you in synagogue until one thirty in the afternoon. And... Uh, <laughs> Our Jews will not do that. <laughs> they will not do that. So a lot of synagogues read on a triennial cycle. Uh, Reconstructionism tends to read on a triennial cycle. Um, but, but none of that has anything to do with, I could teach whatever I wanted. I could teach you all whatever I want, right? So I... Um, I choose to read on a triennial cycle or teach on a triennial cycle, and I have since the beginning, because I noticed that it's very tempting, right? If I'm teaching you Balak, it is very tempting for me to go to the part of the story where there's the donkey, the talking donkey, and the angel, and right, that's, that's the interesting part of the story. That means every time we came here, that's where I would want to go, because it's really hard to sit with other material and go, uh, I got to find something here. But I felt like if I was going to stay honest to the Torah and if I was going to stay honest to my own learning, it meant if I read, if I stayed religiously on a triennial cycle, I was going to have to confront every, every hunk of Torah, even the stuff I really don't want to deal with. So it kept me honest, uh, and it, hopefully it helps my students not feel like, oh, here we go again. That Parsha, we're going to do the Shema, right, you know, or... We just get pulled easily to the highlights, and then we miss some of the other material. That really mm-hmm. helps clarify. Yeah. Well, You'll see today, like I've had to, t- <laughs> I had to take. The few of us who have, are not familiar, could you relate the story quickly? Uh, give us an outline of the donkey. Now we're all we're all excited. Well, either either way. <laughs> Either day we're dealing with the either way we're dealing with the story. So we'll give you the major characters that we're going to see in the text. We have Balak who is king. And we uh, Balak is a king who is getting nervous that the Israelites are hanging out in his territory and that they have had a couple of military victories. And so we've had this story before, haven't we? So he gets nervous that the people of Israel are a lot and they're successful and they're getting militarily strong and so he starts to get nervous. And so he decides that the best way to keep them off balance and lessen their chances of threatening his kingdom is to hire the famous execrationist Balaam. Balaam ben Baor is his full name. An execration is a curse. So Balaam is, is, he's called a seer, he's called a magician, he's called, right, so he he deals in blessings and curses, and he's famous for his curses being efficacious, and so Balak hires Balaam to curse the people Israel so that they won't be a threat to him. So that's our, that's the whole, that's the business of Parshat Balak. 
Um, so at one point, Balaam is riding along on his she-ass. It's important that it's female. There's a different word for female versus male ass. He's riding his ass, and she, she balks. She stops because she sees an angel with a flaming sword. And so she stops so they don't like run into that, because presumably you don't want to run into an angel with a flaming sword. Uh, and so she stops, and he beats her you know, to go. And she says, excuse me, have I ever, ever not done what you've asked me to do? Why would I just stop out of nowhere, do you think? Like, really? You're beating? Really? So, <laughs> so then, they, then they go on. So this, there's kind of this back and forth with him and the donkey. I mean, the, the, I don't know if there's a donkey, ass, whatever. So um, the chaton. So he beats the chaton. She sees the she. They have this conversation. And um, eventually Balaam gets it that... There is, in fact, like finally the angel appears to Balaam. He's able to see the angel, realizes that his chaton has been right all along. So, of course, you can imagine all the commentary is about a she ass saw what Balaam could not. What does this say about Balaam? Uh, right? So, it's kind of it's, it's important that it's like the lowly she ass, right? That, right? It's not a Right. Steed, it's not right. It, that it's this lowly, dumb animal that can see what Balaam cannot. So the, most people see that as this fable as kind of a commentary on Balaam. So the biggest thing that we're going to be looking at um, always when we're looking at this text is the character of Balaam and the character and quality of his blessing of the people, because that's what happens. He tries to curse the people and cannot, and winds up blessing the people of Israel. The words of that blessing are written on that table right over there. You know them very, very, very well. Those words are Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov, Mishkinotecha Yisrael. How amazing, how great are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. All right, so the question that always everyone focuses on, all of our commentary, all of our commentators, all of what the point of this story is, is is Balaam a fool? Is he evil and greedy and wants to curse the people and wants to work for Balak and only cares about wealth and money and power? Or is he just a guy who winds up being a good guy because he winds up getting it? He sees the angel. He understands it that he can only do what God tells him, and he winds up blessing the people. Does he turn out to be a guy who's just doing his business and has a revelation and, be- and becomes a blesser of the people of Israel. And so where you fall on that continuum is how you read the point of this fable, the point of the material that we're going to look at today. So keep in mind, what do you, what do you think about Balaam, given like what's going on? And we're not going to see that much right, of, of his interactions with, with folks because we have a, a small swath that we're looking at. Um, but it also then means, what does it mean if he's... A, a decent guy and he blesses the people of Israel, does that change the blessing if he's an evil, selfish guy who doesn't want to bless the people but, but does because he has no choice, right? Does it change the quality, the nature of the blessing? All right. So we're going to hold those questions. So in other words, does, is it keva or kavana? that matters, right? We've had this conversation before. Is it saying the words, right? And once I release those words, they have their own power in the universe? Or is it my intention in blessing that really carries the, the good stuff, the power? All right. Something is hurting me. That's great. Yeah. My pleasure. All right. Do you think I have a Bible? Hello. Okay. Where are we starting? Somebody starting? Balaam, 39. Yes. Balaam went uh, with Balak, and they came to Kiriad Buzo. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and had them served to Balaam and the dignitaries with him. In the morning, Balaam, uh, Balak took Balaam up to Balmot Baal. From there, he could see a portion of the people. Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here and have seven bulls and seven rams ready here for me. Balak did as Balaam directed, and Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. 
Then Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your offerings while I am gone. Perhaps the Lord will grant me a manifestation, and whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. And he went off alone. God manifested himself to Balaam, who said to him, I have set up seven altars and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and speak thus. So he returned to him and found him standing beside his offerings and all the Moabite dignitaries with him. He took up his theme and said, For my realm has Balak brought me, Moab's king from the hills of the east. Come curse me, Jacob. Come tell Israel's doom. How can I damn whom God has not damned? How doom when the Lord has not doomed? As I see them from the mountaintops, gaze on them from the heights, there is a people that dwells apart, not reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, number the dust cloud of Israel? May I die the death of the upright. May my fight, fate be like theirs. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, so Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiryat Chutzot. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep. So the king is trying to influence Right, the the power, the chazaka of the execration by offering hugely expensive animals. Right, the, the really really expensive ones are the bull. Right, the really big ones. So, so taking really <laughs> expensive animals and offering them, um, and went with, he went with dignitaries. So this is an official government sanctioned mission. Right? The dignitaries are going with the king. This is an official state execration that's going to happen. Um, and of course, that has to be coupled with these offerings so that the gods all right, are also kind of helping out and are propitiated. And so in the morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamot Baal. So, of course, we get an idea of what kind of people this is. They worship, right? Baal. And the high place of Baal, which is often a holy place, but from there he could see a portion of the people. So presumably it helps to see what you're about to curse. (laughs) Right? If you're going to curse, if you can see the object of your... It would work for you. Excellent. If you can see the object of your cursation, then right, it's it's a better it's a better thing. So Balaam says to Balak, "Build me seven altars here, and have seven bulls and seven rams ready here for me." So this is getting hugely expensive, right? But it's also like superpower, right? Um, seven bulls and seven rams. On seven altars, right? So we know this number seven. We know the power of the number seven, right? Yes? The number of completion, the number of fullness is the number seven, right? It's a magic number. So, of course, you're going to have, if you're going to do this all out and you're going to do it right, and you want this curse to hold, seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. Balak has a lot of money. He's already he's offered Balaam wealth and whatever to do this, so... Here we see evidence of the wealth of this kingdom. So Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. We can imagine that took some time. <laughs> right? Like, you don't just, like, okay, it's offered. Next one. Offer, like, it, you have to drain the blood. I mean, this is a long process. process. So it's pretty bloody. It's, you know, it's, this is a huge scene. You know, imagine, like, a movie producer Right, producing this scene, it would take a long time, and it would be huge. The retinue of the you know royal whatever standing around, and the officiants, and the blah blah blah. Would the whole community be there too? I don't know, but I know that the, the fancy people are there. Just the fancy the dignitaries. <laughs> the dignitaries. The dignitaries of Moab. The fancy people are there. Then Balaam said to Balak, "Stay here beside your offerings, meaning you're going to stay in front of the offerings to the gods." Perhaps, and here's something that gets interesting. Ulai yikare yudhe likrati. Perhaps yudhe will grant me a manifestation. Right? Likrati. Maybe yudhe will come to meet me. Udivar. 
right? And I, and I will get a dvar. I will get a word. Mahira'eni, what is shown to me? Vihigaditi lach vayelech shefi. What God, what's revealed to me, I, I will say to you. Vihigidati, I will tell you. Vayelech shefi. And he went off by himself. Why would he be dealing with yud the right. god of the Israelites, and give him legitimacy? Yeah. Because this is the Israelites' book. <laughs> and they wrote it. We wrote it. We wrote it. <laughs> we get to pick. What do you think? He obviously had some kind of prior ah. relationship that he knows, I can, I'm going to go talk to God now, Yudhei Bapei. Yes. And then later he says, Elohim. So I'm wondering if they are both, um, in his mind, the gods of Israel, or how he looks at these names of God. So in chapter 22, we already have, Vayavo Elohim el Bil'am, Vayomer. Elohim comes to Bil'am and says, Right? What, what do these people want of you? And Balaam says to God, well, Balak wants me to curse those people, <laughs> right? And God says, do not go with them. You must not curse that people, for they are blessed. So Balaam has, Balaam has already had contact with Elohim. Uh, and so possibly he knows Elohim to be yod heh or that manifestation he understood is the God of Israel, Right, um, but it's clear that he connects Yehovah to this experience of having been told this people is don't do it. This people is blessed. Are they polytheists? Yes. People? So he he would have no problem <laughs> believing that this is the Israelite Correct. god and that's another god. Correct. Right. Baal told me this. Asherah told me that. Right. Yehovah told right. me so and so. Plus, he went ahead to see Balak, and on the way, he got a little warning. Right. So we have this whole yeah. angel, this whole angel business, right, happening. So clearly, clearly, Balaam knows that, yeah. right, that, that he's not supposed to do this. He's not supposed to curse the people. Um, what was he going to say? Uh, I can't help you. Too young. I'm <laughs> too young. Um, oh, okay, I remember. Um, that, uh, why do you think Balaam, or, uh, Balak was give, Balaam was given such an honor to speak directly with God when only Moshe was the only other one to speak directly? It doesn't say he spoke directly with God face to face. Well, Yaakov, this one, that one, they all, Vayomer Elohim, and God says to them. Mm-hmm. We have lots of instances of people, right, getting instruction yeah, this, this from God. This is different to me because he seems to know God's going to respond. The other ones, they just kind of appear, God appears and starts talking. This one seems to know, I'm going to go and I'm going to have some kind of interaction with God. And other than Moshe, I can't think of anybody that... Well, presu- I've just been reading yeah. about the priestly author. Um, I just I found a quote in a in a book, and then it quoted because I'm such a nerd. I went to look up the article that it was in, and the article was in a collection of articles in a book. So I had Eleanor order the book, <laughs> and one of and it's about kind of uh, what we've been talking about. It's about um, kind of how the Bible was written, um, and so one of the one of the subjects is who gets to talk to God. And when. And it turns out, which I don't think I was even clear about, it turns out it depends who the author is. Oh, interesting. If it's P. Oh, you mean of which piece? Yes. Which if, it's, if it's P, the tent of meeting can be, apparently, um, the tent of meeting, anyone can access God there. Anyone can go to meet God there. Moshe is the one we hear about most frequently, but at some point it says Joshua bin Nun was in the tent and never left. Like he stayed there all the time, but that anyone could come, and they show a quote from Torah, to come to meet God at the Ohel Moed. So it depends on who the author is as to who has access to a direct encounter with God and when. In other words, P is in Genesis. You know, P is all over Genesis. You know, so we can't even say, okay, in Genesis, the forefathers 
had to build a Mizbeach, and maybe God would come, and maybe God would right? So it, we, we can't even say that, because peas all over the place and all over the books. So, um, so it seems there are different interpretations of who can access the divine. Oh, so I think I misspoke. P would say it has to be at the sanctuary, right? It's only through the sanctuary. God never manifests, God forbid, you know, like talky-talky. Like, it's, um, it's the other author that has the Ohel Moed be that place of meeting. I think it was E, um, who has the Ohel Moed. So, so P, it's always at the sanctuary, right? And it's always through ritual. And it's always through the priest. And it's always right through this. But the other author says, no, no anybody can come to Ohel Moed and encounter the divine. So I think, so, so a, lot, a lot of what people talk about with this is why is Balaam given God's blessing to the people? Like of all, of all the people to pick to bless the people of Israel, why Balaam? Well, he must have credence. Uh, so he was, he, we, we have, interestingly enough, Balaam ben Beor is attested outside of the Bible. There are not many things we have attested outside of the Torah. Most of our tradition we understand from Torah because most of the material culture is gone in terms of writing and, and where we would see this stuff. But we do have in the region Balaam ben Beor attested to outside of the Torah, which suggests he is a common figure. So let's say he's a famous... He's... he's Saint Nicholas, right. he's Santa Claus. Like he, right, right, right. he is the execration guy, right? That everyone <laughs> has and, and knows and loves. So, 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 so if he's if he's this figure, this big, powerful, non-Israelite execrationist figure, now tell me why Torah might put blessings into his mouth. Why? Part of show that. You don't have to be a king or a great leader in order to feel something about God and to talk about it. Okay, so certainly you don't have to be Israelite, apparently, <laughs> to encounter what Israel would call the one God, right? And you don't have to be king and you don't have to be fancy pants, you, right? Um, okay. To make the story credible. To make what? To make this, this story credible. To make this story credible. So we need to have the famous guy that everybody knows is a good execrationist and the real deal Th- then our story becomes credible. And what does credible mean? What, what's this about? That you can believe it. That you can believe the story? Yes. Okay, because it's about Balaam and we all know Balaam. Mm-hmm. We all know about him. Okay, so it's more credible. That is the power of God which sits behind this this is the same God that split the sea, and now here's the most famous cursor coming to curse the people, and that God somehow is their protector in the desert. And, take it a step further. And that shows God is supreme, the one God, the God who's more powerful than all the other things, which is a recurring theme here. And more powerful than... Baal. Baal. More powerful than Baal. More powerful than Balaam ben Beor. You 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 can't get around Yud Hey Vav Hey. It doesn't matter how great an execrationist you are, right? So so Dafka, it's not about. I don't think it's about Balaam earning contact with God. I think it is God using Balaam as a tool to say, not only is this people blessed by me. This people is going to be blessed by the most famous non-Israelite execrationist in history. And everybody knows him. Every culture says he's the best. All of Mesopotamia is talking about this guy. Right? And so his name is everywhere. So Yudhe you is going to bless God's people, right? Davka. Davka through this guy. Yes? So in that sense, it makes it makes it, it makes sense in that Balaam becomes the tool of God to prove once again that God is the God of all everything uh, and has the power to manifest blessing for Israel or not, independent of any other power, no matter how famous and and efficacious that power has been. Well, he established his cloud. Um, with seven uh, seven bulls and seven rams getting Balak to do all this thing. So 
if he's uh, made kids to say something positive about the Israelites or about Yehovah, uh, um, uh, that's going to have clout with Balak because Balak just uh, put up a sizable amount of <laughs> So either Balaam's really stupid, right? Or there's something going on here because who would be so stupid as to spit in the face of my seven bulls and rams and whatever to say something against what I hired him to do? He's not an idiot, right? So, so the, the, the bigger all of this gets, right? Think about when God says, I'm bringing these, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? To show that he's more powerful than Pharaoh. So God gets to do a bunch of plagues. God gets to show the Israelites, and probably the Egyptians too, um, how powerful God is. Right? So the bigger all this gets, the more powerful yud heh bav is in the story. There's many, there's many things throughout this whole desert experience that are showing the power of God in many different ways. Yes. And that it is God that was freeing them and not by their own power. Whether it be Whether it be the parting of the sea or the manna that God brings or water from a rock, ultimately, or here to prevent the cursing. Right. Okay. So... Perhaps, perhaps God will speak to me, and I will. I'll tell you what God says. He goes off alone. God manifests God's self. Vayikar Elohim El Bilam. So God manifests. So it's an interesting word here. Aviva Zornberg picks up on Vayikar. This is not the the word we usually see. It's either Vayar and God appears, mm-hmm. or God Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, right? Lemor, God says to Moshe, saying, We don't usually see Vayikar, that God shows up, like, <laughs> like materializes. Like, think about Star Trek and, you know, the, um, how you, the transporter, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's kind of like God goes, and right, manifests all of a sudden. Vayikar Elohim El Bil'am, to Bil'am, Vayomer, and says, a love, and says to him, right, um, I have set up seven altars and offered up a bull and ram um, on each altar. Wait, what? God, God manifested to Bal'am, who said to God, right, right? I have to look at the English to see that Bayomer Elav usually would mean and got saying to him, meaning Balaam, but in this case it is tortured and it's Balaam says to God, mm-hmm. I have set up the seven altars and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar, and God put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and speak thus. Bayesem Adonai Davar Bifi Bilam. God literally puts a word. Into his mouth and says, Now you're going to go back and say this. Aviva Zorenberg has a very graphic image of this being a bit in a horse's mouth. And how does a bit work? You puncture the cheek of the animal, which is very sensitive. So then when you pull on a rein, I wrote English, so when you pull on the rein, Right, you're, you're you're pulling on the mouth, which is very sensitive. So the horse doesn't want to be in pain. The horse turns. So, so Viva Zornberg is talking about. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. So Viva Zornberg is talking about this as this is not this is not the way we think of prophecy. Like you shouldn't think. Cause, so how is she reading Balaam? Right. Right. Remember, I said it. it, it how we read Balaam is how we interpret everything that happens. So how does Aviva Zorenberg interpret Balaam? He's being forced to do this. He's evil. He's greedy. He's a fool. He just wants money, Mm -hmm. and he'll do whatever it takes for that, and he's being forced by God to do this, and it's like a bit in his mouth, this davar. So now God can just turn Balaam however God wants to, and Balaam has no choice, and I'll read you a little bit of what she says because I think it's interesting. She says, so this is a punishment. Because what is Balaam's power? Cursing. 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 And now what's happened? (laughs) His blessing and and he has no choice. The the davar now becomes something that twists his mouth. And even though he's trying to curse Israel, look what, right? So, So it's not just 
God wants to bless the people, and instead of cursing, he blesses. Instead, for Aviva Zornberg, this is much, I don't want to say darker, but it's a lot deeper than that. God is punishing Balaam by twisting his gift. He no longer has control of his gift. What is more threatening to a poet, and, and she uses that word, a poet, than losing the capacity to, to, to create with the word reality? Jana. Is there any parallel between the fact that Balaam's being treated like an animal? And, you know, just like, so we have these seven sacrifices going on. Tell me the animal you think possibly Balaam is being compared to with her. (laughs) You beat the donkey. You beat her. She She was trying to save your life. She saw something you couldn't see, you stupid human. And you're beat because you're so intent on getting your wealth and power and fame. So you beat the crap out of her. Well, guess what? <laughs> right, you. He he winds up being, in, according to uh, this is all Zornberg, but I but I think she's got a point, you know. But so he winds up being, you know, led around by a bit in his mouth, right? You think you're so above this this beast of burden, right? And <laughs> so you're, you're, the, no, you're no different. Right. How do the commentators connect the beating of the she ass? And I go back to last week. There was a beating of a rock with a stick. I think in both cases, I mean, this is just off the top of my head because I didn't prepare that text. So that's kind of off limits, frankly, to ask the rabbi about the test. I'm sorry. So, I, I mean, it's just, too obvious a parallel. I, I, somebody had to be. Somebody you know. had to do it. So, I mean, my kishkas tell me they're both indications of human beings who are so caught up in their own power, power uh-huh. and desire and go, their goal for the, for about them, about them. Th- and that action is like okay, we'll see, right, right. This is what God's like. This is what I'm dealing with, right? So Moshe does it, you know, and then this guy, you know, Balaam does it as well because they're so caught up in their stuff, you know. For Moshe, I mean, and this guy's probably pretty angry too. The beast keeps stopping. Mm-hmm. It won't go. It won't do what he's telling it to do. So he's getting really frustrated and really angry, as was Moshe. So in both cases, I think it just it shows our human our human flaws, and and also I think is a negative commentary on those people's ability to control mm. their, or yeah. look up from their own. They have anger issues. They have anger issues. <laughs> we, we were just having this conversation last night at dinner. My friend Panina's here from Israel with her um, partner, and um, we were having this conversation, and we were talking about anger and temper, and Judy and Panina's partner, her partner's probably in his 60s, late 60s, and um, we were talking about anger and how it changes over time. Like, does, does your temperament change? And both Judy and Elliot both said, I used to have a terrible temper, mm-hmm. right? And Panina was like, well, how, how do you change that? Mm-hmm. Did you change? You know, and I think both of them, and Elliot didn't talk a lot, mm-hmm. but, um, but <laughs> I think he didn't disagree, so I think he agreed, um, that, it, it, that it's about getting to a point in life where it's like, is it worth, right. is it worth it? It's like, I'm still mad, but then you're able to kind of go, you're so mad, really, about that? Really? Is it really worth my time and energy and all the working up that's going to happen for me to be so angry about that? You know what? I can just, it's not worth it. We can let it, I can let it go. Right. And so, um, I don't know what my point was about that. So, so some people evolve into that, mm-hmm. right? And then I think one of the things we talked about last week mm-hmm. is that possibly part of that story is that Moshe hasn't. Mm-hmm. Moshe, He's the elder right. leader, the lead statesman who's aging, is not at that place of saying, it's just not worth this. Mm-hmm. I'll talk to the flipping rock, and we'll get the water, and we'll give them their thermos, and like we'll go home, right? He's... he's He's all wrought up. And the, the Hasidic commentaries for sure point to that being a flaw in character because he not just once, but he hit twice, right? That, it's, that he's caught up in that still is like, it's... It, which it, is why God had to act. Yes. Or, no, I mean... To say it's time. God needed to act because God was going to slake the thirst of the people, yeah. but... But 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 in the in the consequence, God is like, wow, Moshe's just not he's not able to let it go. He's not he's not matured to the place or he can't or won't or 
isn't able to because of the Jews. He was experiencing grief, and I, I think there's something there about not allowing time for someone to grieve when you just lost your sister. He had no time. He had to just start doing this stuff again. Yeah, so definitely the commentators. We, we had a whole thing last week where we talked about what if the consequence isn't a bad thing? What if, you know, but, but kind of like, yeah, he, he's grieving. He's, oh, whatever. Yes? Um, last week I got to see Pema Chodron and Father Gregory Boyle. Oof. What did you see? Pema um, Chodron and Father Gregory so, Boyle. I, I, oh, wow. She's an American Buddhist nun. He's a Jesuit priest who's founded Homeboy Industries. And there was a lot of discussion about anger and closing your heart, closing your mind, hardening your heart. And um, there... What was sort of her take on things? And she's a very sort of you know plain-spoken and frank, wise person who said that this anger—it's not—it's not necessarily an age issue, but it's certainly the the goal is she was, would say to not to not act in anger towards you know towards anyone. There's so much hate, there's so much anger, there's so much grief right now. People are expressing, what do I do with all my frustration, all my anger? And she said, you know, if, if protests come out of anger and hatred and fury, then it's really no different than, or no better than, all the, the stuff that you're protesting against that is also most motivated by closed hearts or closed minds. And you can have whatever actions that you take, to, the goal is to try to have those be motivated by positive energy, by the desire to alleviate suffering, by a love, so that you may be taking the same actions, or maybe your actions will even be better, more impactful, than if they're just coming from this anger. So it was, a, it was not easy to do, but it's like an emotional maturity to try to shift away from the anger and focus on just a positive I would like to alleviate suffering. How do I do that? And so the only thing I'm going to add is I think, I think people are more committed to that. The old, often the older they get, and they find it easier to understand even what you just said. Yeah. A lot of young people will go, what are you talking about? I'm taking to the streets. This is not going to happen in my city. Right? That it's just kind of innate. But as we, as we see more things, as we experience more things, as we hold like the realities of, of the complications that we live with and the causes and blah, blah, like I think we're better able to go all right like is it working for us to come out of anger and fear not not so much let's yeah. let's try another way or to or to say okay it's not I'm just saying I'm, I'm not saying it's that. absolute no, but I think I there is a connection that. between I, I think lately there's been such a concentrated anger mm. there's so many things to be angry about one on top of the other that maybe uh, we're getting there faster to that realization. We, have, we don't have to live as many years of experiencing anger spread out over time because it's been condensed. And the feeling of so much anger all the time. So you're saying it's, it's become such an incredible focus that now we're going to have to tackle this issue, forget the issues that made us angry. Right. Now anger itself has become a focus that even people who normally wouldn't go there, they'd be caught up in the issue, that even they are now going to need to kind of address what, what do we do that, with this. Yeah, I think I'm saying that the, maybe it's uh, the normal amount of anger a person experiences over a lifetime. Has, uh, has shifted in the past two years personally so that I'm now able to realize, wow, this anger feeling is not helping me or the world. So I'm going to try to figure out a way to move past that anger or at least try to push it aside when I can remember to and open up to act out of different, different feelings because it's not helping. On the other hand. On the other hand. <laughs> I don't think I think it's a sort of ageist kind of thing to presume that because a person is older they can get past and let go of anger so I would certainly never presume that just because one is older all I said was I think 
often it helps to have experience and exposure to a broader range for a longer time to have a slightly different ability to have a different perspective, but not everybody certainly Young people can have it too, and older people, some, I know who you work with. So I know, right? I think it has to do more with wisdom than with age. And because this leads me to think of what happened in Long Beach this past week. Uh, you read, read in the newspaper, this guy who shot and killed, who shot and killed the people in the newspaper. No, no, no. The old folks of the people of Israel are docile. I have worked in this business for a really long time. <laughs> no. All right. So, okay, I want to be clear. I'm not presuming that. I'm, and maybe you weren't saying that I was. I'm not presuming that. I still am going to go back to, because I get to have the last word. I have the microphone. I'm going to, I really believe it is about wisdom. And I believe that often wisdom is tied to experience and tied to Age in a way that's about holding things in a context that is bigger than the immediacy of what we tend to deal with when we're younger. I, and that's just the way life is. That it's just there's an openness often, there's a there's a willingness to change one's attitude. Would I rather be happy or right? Yes. Um, exactly. A lot of my life I, I, I needed to be right because I was insecure, right? And so if you're wrong, oh my god, they're gonna find out that I'm not really a rabbi. <laughs> they gave me that piece of paper, but I fooled them all, right? So, and so we dig in, and so all I'm saying is I think sometimes a wider experience, which often comes with time, meaning you get more experience because you've lived a longer time, I think can, can predispose us, if we're about pursuing it, wisdom. And, and I frankly see... I think we've lost that, and I think we live in an ageist culture that doesn't recognize that nearly enough. I'm not suggesting just because you're old this and therefore it's ageism. I think it's the reverse, that we live in a, in a culture that glorifies how hip and cool and into the current moment thing you are, and that's what gives you power and status and, and all that. And, and I believe that we've lost the recognition that there is a wisdom and a breadth of experience and a depth of perception that sometimes only comes with time and, and with having more experience. And, and I wish we lived in a culture where it was flipped around again, where elders were recognized as people to go to because they have experience and they can help you contextualize your life and your little petty whatever. <coughs> and it's not petty to you because it's something that's really happening for you. But we've lost the respect of our, for our elders that they deserve at least the presumption that it's possible that they're right and that they have more wisdom than we have. And, and it makes me very sad. And I'll, I know you want to talk, and, and I'll get there. And then I'll leave this bird. It's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it in a minute. But, um, um, but I want to say the other thing is that's really exacerbating this, and the research is showing this, is that young people are now the experts on everything because they are native speakers of technology. I speak with a very thick accent, and the generation above me is working to translate every second. The phone rings, and it's like, Wait, what's that word? What's that word? Right? It's translating all the time. I speak with a heavy accent, you know, but my child, my daughter, is a native fluent speaker. So what, ha what has this meant? If I'm sitting at my computer and I'm frustrated, what does my daughter do? Yeah. Mom. Mom, 
move. <laughs> yeah. Let me do it. Yeah. Right? You're, she gets frustrated watching me not be able to, in three seconds, know what needs to happen here. Because for her, it's evident, right? It's it just, she doesn't have to think about it, right? She's in, been interacting with technology her whole educational life. So what they're finding in the studies is, is that our generation, like adults have lost the position of being the teachers and being the carriers of knowledge and wisdom and experience, and the young people are now the experts teaching the, the older generations, and that has messed up completely the respect relationship. The, the kid, young people used to have to go to their father and say, you know, how do I do this? Like my carburetor is, or whatever, you know, and so, so it's a real, real challenge right now and a real challenge for our society and for our elders, who I'm becoming one of rapidly, um, the way it's flipped over because I think it's totally unhealthy for our society to be looking at young people as the ones with the wisdom or the answers. That is really terrifying. Jody, I know you've been waiting to speak. <laughs> it's a catastrophe. What are you talking about? We have to be, we have to be clear to differentiate knowledge and technology from wisdom. Yes. Of course. Of course, because they equate them. They think they're so smart and they know everything because they have this control of technology. It's really scary. And yet let's not forget that I think respect can, should be a mutual I, of course. And when I look at our Parkland teenagers and no, of course, you know, absolutely. Not, there, there can be wisdom, and it shouldn't be dismissed by any age. No, of course not. Absolutely not. Real quick, I have to respond to what Laura said about anger. Okay. Because part of what the rabbis say is that we all have a yetsur hatov mm-hmm. and a yetsur hara. Yes. And we have a, I guess, a positive. Positive mm-hmm. and a negative, and part of the negative is anger. Yeah, and that that can't be eliminated. Mm-hmm. That I mean, the, the idea is that God put it there for a reason, and the issue is not eliminating these, but how do we channel it into a more positive way? So, Judaism is definitely, as I understand it, not pacifist and not trying to eliminate anger, but trying to say how do we take anger and put it to a better a better thing and in that way is very different from buddhism yes and uh we're gonna do mindfulness meditation in a while and so i i've I've read a lot of pima children and i she's fantastic um and i think what the way we bring that together is you're right we're not buddhist right we're not pacifists we're not Mm going to say okay the the goal is to move past Mm -hmm. whatever um but but in mindfulness practice which she is a practitioner Mm -hmm. of um I think what we do Jewishly about it is to say, okay, so I'm her. Her she has this thing about um, start where you are and like take mm. your seat and just you, you hold your seat. And so we hold our seat, and when we hold our seat and we get quiet and we sense that anger, if we think about what's happening in our times and that anger is there, the the goal is to hold that, to experience that, then to breathe through it, right? And and to do exactly that to uh, to focus my attention on committing myself to those acts, right acts in the world mm-hmm. that will address mm-hmm. the cause of my anger. So that the anger no longer defines my action. It takes you over. It, right? It doesn't take me over, but I don't deny it either. Mm-hmm. Right? I sit mm-hmm. present with it, but I, but I hopefully work with it in a way that I'm able to get to a place of love and of the mm-hmm. soft heart and of, okay, so how do I help alleviate the suffering that all of this business is 
that, that leads to some of this violence, because the suffering is what leads to violence, and then violence causes more suffering. Anyway, so it's that horrible. So how do we break that cycle? May I ask a question about Torah that you brought up earlier, about P and the writers, different writers in the Torah? How many different writers have been identified as participating in the writing of the Torah? Most... How most, are they identified? Most sources agree J, E, P, and D. We've, we've talked yes, about this before. Right. J, E, P, and D. Okay. The Yahwist, the Elohist, the priestly author, right. and the Deuteronomist. And we've talked about that we've added to P, H, okay. which is the holiness code. The priests who are responding to the early prophets. And are they identified by writing style? Yes. Or use of language? Yes. Which is writing style? Yes. And often, and often the, what, what their interest is. All genealogies are P. Okay. This one begat, this one begat, this one begat. This one is always P. Okay. So, you know, so there are some things they know about the agenda of the writer. Um, and some of it is about language and when it's written. And some of it's about language that would have been used in the north versus the south. And imagery that would have been used in the north and not the south. Okay. By the tribal. Yeah. Why do you think um, the rabbis decided to give Balak the honor of a naming a Parsha after him. <laughs> they don't. They don't. It's not an honor. He's at all. Topic. It, no, it's the first word. Oh, well, <laughs> they could have broken it up a million different ways. But. Because it's about Balak. I mean, for them, it's not an honor thing. It's not an honor. Uh-uh. It, at all. Like, it's really just about yeah. the first words of that Parsha are how you identify the hunk that starts with Balak. Yeah. For them, it's not, not have, about honor. Do you have any idea when, in the course of the 40 years, in the desert, this is happening. We're now in the last two years. 38 years. We're in the very end of the desert experience because 38 years goes silently. We jumped. Last week, we jumped 38 years. Okay. So, Aviva Zornberg says, stay with me. Stay with me. She's, she's tough. So, stay with me. So, she goes to this word, tsa'am, that God placed a vayasem, right? Uh, God places this davar in his mouth, right? She says vayasem has the meaning of organizing or ordering. And she goes to the Sfatimet, who says that the righteous are characterized by an ability to transform their prophetic message for the better. And it's all about language, meaning God just gives you the kernel as the prophet. You as the prophet have the gift of you know, of taking that message, using your gift of language, and therefore enhancing the blessing or the experience by how you, the prophet, talk about it, right, or, or deliver uh, that message. Moses is implicitly the archetype of this creative power. So Svadamet uses the word ta'amim to make this point about transformations of meaning. Ta'amim refers to taste, meaning, sense, punctuation marks, cantillation marks. The ta'am can turn the sense of the words from one extreme to the other. And what she's going to say, if you look at the book of Job, it says, what is the fate of the wicked? God takes away the ta'am of elders. So what would most frustrate an elder would be to lose the capacity to, to express wisdom, to express meaning, right? To express all of that, because that's their bailiwick. So she says about, about Balaam, if he has lost the ta'am of language, its taste in the mouth, he has become an automaton. He is like the undead, possessed by an uncanny animation. Ooh. Right? So just think about that. Which is what we see. Right, so the walking dead, I mean, some of us have a very, very vivid image when we think of the walking dead. Right? He's like the undead. Possessed by an uncanny animation. So, you know, invasion of the body snatcher. Like, he's not even there. It's just his body being animated by this other force. Sfatamet goes against the grain of the Midrashic imagery. The bit that twists Balaam's mouth here untwists the spontaneous torsion of Balaam's malevolence. English. I know, right? The bit that twists Balaam's mouth here untwists the spontaneous torsion of Balaam's malevolence. Right? So I had to go torsion. I'm used yeah. to distortion. distortion right. So, right? So I'm like, okay, so distortion is it gets 
unclear and messed up. So the spontaneous torsion, the, the spontaneous clarity of Balaam's malevolence, right, is untwisted here by the twisting of his mouth. That's a beautiful image. That's very important. Just saying. All right. So, so this that has Balaam being characterized as as completely rotten, right? And so all of this is twisting um, his mouth around because he's, he doesn't want to bless the people of Israel, right? Um, so we're going to see here that uh, we get called here. What do we get called? We get called a people alone. Yes? In this, in the words that God puts into Balaam's mouth, how can I damn whom God has not damned? How doom when God has not doomed? As I see them from the mountaintops, verse 9, gaze on them from the heights. There is a people that dwells apart, not reckoned among the nations. What's that? Our history. Hmm? Our history. <laughs> okay, well, now we would read it that way. What does it mean when we're at... Well, they're just coming out of the desert. Yeah, they've been in the desert. So they've been alone. Well... Yeah, but that's that's what the po- that's what the writer's imagining. What is the writer? Why would the writer pick this image? We haven't had that history be kicked out of everywhere yet. No, the author doesn't know that history. But then this gets us to the idea of specialness or chosenness that this is God's people. They're not a people like any other nation. No, that's what I'm asking. Different from the multiple God worshippers. Okay, so we are dwell alone because we're not polytheists. Okay. Wasn't that the, 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 the uh, interpretation that all the rules of uh, Kashrut and what have you was to separate uh, the Israelites from the people in Canaan, to separate and make it different, make them different, so that so that our our being distinct at that time is already saying we're wanting to be a people that is alone, apart. Apart. Okay. Or at least separate. Ah, so now Sheldon's going to the high through the uh, documentary hypothesis and saying possibly this is a post-exilic source that we have here. Could it be prophetic? Hmm. Could it be a prophecy? If if you believe in prophecy, then that's a possibility. Yeah, but but otherwise, what? If it's a prophecy, it's supposed to be a blessing, right? So. Like if it's a pro- does does the person writing it really is it really a prophecy about the future? Okay, maybe. I mean, I don't whatever. Yeah. But because it, it's odd, yeah. it's odd to put a prophecy about the people being alone in the mouth of Balaam, who's who's blessing instead of cursing. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So of course our tradition goes crazy with this because it just can't stand it. <laughs> and it's a love letter from God, right? right? So a couple of interpretations are that. Badad means, yes, it's a stretch. You got to stay with me. It's a stretch. I know it. Ba, dad. And in this case, translating the word dad as breast. Ba, dad. What's ba? There comes the breast. So that what it's saying is, Israel's is. Badad is there's badad. It's a people to whom the breast will come, suckling for you know good things, life, nourishment, right? That that God will take care of all that. God will nurse the people, right? So it's badad. Badad, take the take the numerical value. Two. Dalit is four, right? So what do we got? 10. What's the letter that's 10? What's the letter that stands Good. for 10? Good. So this tiny little thingy is, so don't read Badad alone, God forbid, take the numerical value of each letter and you get 10. And it's saying that Israel is completely together, united as one, like a yud. <laughs> a little point. We are that together. We're just like a yud. That's not a stretch. <laughs> right? 
All right. So um, you see what our our people do with right? Yeah. Okay. Um, you got you got my the handout. Yes. Yes. Do I have one? Carol, can I borrow or can I borrow someone's and then if you'll share, I'll give it back to you. Blessed and a source of blessing. This is Rabbi Bradley Shabit Artson. So he talks about every year we read the remarkable story of the Gentile king Balak, blah, 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 blah. Come down to Balak demands, right? Balaam demands that Balak, Balak demands that Balaam curse the Jews so that they will be easier to defeat in battle. Now, watch how he's going to read this, right? It all depends how you read Balaam. Faithful to God. <laughs> Balaam explains that he cannot curse or bless without first receiving divine authorization. When he asks God what to do, God tells him, do not curse the people, kivaruchu, for it is blessed. What is God really saying about us? In what way are the Jewish people, baruch, blessed? The medieval commentary, Lekach Tov, understands this phrase to mean that we are blessed because of the sechut avot, the righteous deeds of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, our ancestors. Their goodness was such that God blessed us with an irrevocable blessing. We, their later descendants, benefit from their blessing to this day, right? Because the question has to be, you can't bless them, you can't curse them, for they are already blessed. Well, what does that mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So um, in this case, he quotes Lekach Tov, and Lekach Tov says they are blessed because of the deeds of their ancestors, the righteousness and goodness of their ancestors, meaning they didn't earn it, it's not about them, but their their descendants. And so, because we are Bene Yisrael, the children of the descendants of Israel, we are blessed. It's just how it is. Another related way to understand this verse is to ask ourselves in what way we are blessed. It does sound like God is saying that there is some intrinsic blessing with which we are imbued. How are the Jews blessed? We are blessed with a rich memory, he says. As a people, we enjoy a continuous identity stretching back to the very earliest layers of human history. From Abraham and Sarah down to the youngest Jewish baby alive today, we know where we come from and we know who we are. In an age of rootlessness, in a time of confusion about identity, we Jews have the luxury of knowing our beginnings and of identifying with our rich and vivid history, our varied history. As the Pesach Haggadah urges, each generation understands the history of the Jews not merely as something from the past, but as something informing our own identity. Today, we were freed from Egypt. We fashioned the Talmud. We explored the depths of Jewish philosophy and Kabbalah. We enjoyed the modern fruits of emancipation and of Zionism. Right? So to say we... We, not they did that, but we, someone just called me, you know, I told you I was getting some hate mail for that e-blast that I sent out about the, the children at the border. And so um, one of the guys, thankfully, wasn't hateful, but he said, you know, this is really distressing to me, blah, 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 blah. Can I come in and talk to you to clear the air and to get your perspective? I said, I would, I would, I said to him, I said, look, he goes, I'm going to, because I disagree. And I don't, and I said, look, we, we, our holiest collection of stuff. Is the Talmud. It's one of our greatest collections of holy literature. And it's all arguing. It's all rabbis arguing with rabbis who are already dead. Right? They, they, they argue three generations back. Like they we can't stop arguing. I said for us that's a holy endeavor, right? And I think that's what he means here. I didn't say, well, our ancestors who wrote the Talmud would say, right? I said, we we are we are the people of the Talmud. It's alive. It's this is who we are, and and just to be able to say stuff like that and and mean it and believe it and experience it is something that many people in our in our society today don't have. They're complete. They're so unrooted, including my own daughter. Like I, you know, I get it. But like it's a very. I think he's hundred percent right. What it means to be part of a people gives us a sense of we that is continuous for thousands of years and that that is a truly a blessing. I couldn't agree more. We are blessed with a wise and profound way of life. 
Not only do we have a history that is ancient and continuing, but we also have a way of life that is rich and rewarding. The cycle of Shabbat, holy days, and festivals adds shape and texture to our week and years, allowing us to rejoice with our loved ones and to create precious occasions to cherish and enjoy. Drop down linked as they are to ethical values and religious expression. Their beauty is enhanced by moral depth and by great insights to be learned anew, right? So that we get carried through, you know, a bunch of holidays and practices and, and sacred times that are connected for us to, to ethics and values and practices that, that make us, hopefully, a better people and make us each better people. And that that's, that's a blessing, too, that we don't get to pick, is it Pesach time or not? Are we going to do Pesach or not? Should we do that next September? Well, can we clear the calendar? Like, it's like, it's Pesach. <laughs> like, so, so you find a place to go be about this stuff at, at Pesach, that and Pesach teaches us. We chose that route to attach ourselves to, wanted that basis. Right. Because we didn't feel it before. Right. And I think many people feel it. But I see a terrible discontinuity between what we're supposedly blessed with and things that are going on in Israel and the situation there. Mm -hmm. And and reconciling that discontinuity is very difficult. We are blessed with being the messengers of God's love and justice. Our religious tradition harnesses beautiful ritual for the sake of ethical rigor. By teaching us to care for the sick, to feed the hungry, to shelter the homeless, to care for the earth, our religion offers a message as vital now as it was when it was first articulated. Amen. Uh, Go to his, his last paragraph. The way we live our lives then must be measured not only by our ritual observances, important as they are, but also by how we embody the ethical mitzvot, by shouldering the burdens that weigh others down, by conducting our business lives in an honorable and productive fashion, by embodying patience and compassion in all we do, we live up to Balaam's and God's high expectations. Are we a blessing? Are you? Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.